Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Dr. Wei-Feng Zhang is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Dr. Zhang is working on a really interesting open source product called the Policy Change Index. It's a framework that uses machine learning that to quote unquote read large volumes of text, much of it Chinese propaganda, and facilitate and make inferences about policy issues. The project's first use included an indicator that predicted China's major policy changes towards Hong Kong, and they've created a product called Policy Change Index for Crackdown, PCI Crackdown, an indicator that predicts how likely the Chinese government would crack down on the 2019-2020 Hong Kong protesters. Dr. Zhang has been a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, he has a PhD and a Master of Science in Managerial Economics and Strategy from Northwestern University. He also has a Master in Economics, two MPhil degrees in Economics from the University of Hong Kong, and a BA in Business Administration from Shantou University in China. Dr. Zhang, thanks for being with us today on Building the Future. Thank you, Dan, for having me. So you grew up in China. Talk about what it was like growing up in China, and then talk about how you were in Hong Kong for a while. Talk about your time in Hong Kong and what was Hong Kong like. And then talk about your time studying in the United States and now working in the United States and how that's shaped your view of the world. So it's kind of really a transition from one extreme growing up in China to being in the middle in Hong Kong and then to eventually coming to the U.S. I was in China until I finished college. And throughout all this time, one thing that really is has a long-lasting impact in my intellectual pursuit was the concept of propaganda, which, as you can guess, I was exposed to a lot of them growing up in China. But I found it really fascinating because, first of all, I grew up with a little defiance of authority. So I was puzzled because I didn't believe any of those uh, propaganda talking points saying that, you know, everything's great and uh, everything the government does is correct. But I found it really uh, puzzling because it seems everybody else believed in propaganda. So I was the minority. And I soon realized that they believed propaganda talking points because propaganda is really an effective policy instrument that changes people's mind and hence changes people's action. And so then I didn't quite understand why don't people just look into the Chinese propaganda and figure out what's going on in the mind of the Chinese government and what it would do next. So when I live in Hong Kong, it's sort of in, in the middle between, you know, the authoritarian regime versus the entirely free world. It's only after I came to the United States did I realize that analyzing propaganda in order to predict policies is an idea that has been around for many years. But it used to be hard to do. The U.S. intelligence community have been practicing that since World War II, basically, when they were analyzing Nazi propaganda and trying to predict the German government's actions during the war. But it used to be hard to do until in recent years, we have this AI technology so that we don't need to read propaganda messages ourselves and endanger basically our worldviews, right? And so using AI technology to do the heavy lifting for us ends up being how I spend my time all day now. 
What did you experience when you came to the United States? Talk about sort of your culture shock when you came here. So I didn't really have a lot of cultural shock because I had the transitional a few years of transitional period in Hong Kong. What I did realize after coming to the U.S. was that I came to U.S. in 2009. So that's a time when the U.S. attitude toward China is gradually shifting from the more romantic engagement with China with uh, more and more toward the hardline policies that we see today. So that change in itself is really also gradually changing. I guess my impression about the U.S. attitude toward China is moving along as it evolves over time as well. Yeah, yeah. And tell me about when the United Kingdom handed over Hong Kong in 1997, Chinese leaders made a deal that Hong Kong would maintain its autonomy until 2047. The crackdown that's happened since really in the last 18 months, I think is clearly a backing out of that agreement. And so sort of 27 years before the end of that agreement, they're ending sort of the autonomy. What's going to happen to Hong Kong as they crack down and they apply this national security law in Hong Kong? So I think what is really unraveling in front of our eyes is the fact that the international order is drastically changing from the U.S. dominance to a U.S.-China rivalry. And in light of this U.S.-China rivalry, anywhere that used to be in the middle, such as Hong Kong and to some extent Taiwan, is not really feasible, which means that both U.S. and China are going to grab as many allies as they can to form the power in both ends of the international order. And then nations and regions that used to be in the middle will have to take side. And what's happening in Hong Kong is exactly the effort the Chinese government has been planning for a long time to grab Hong Kong. And it seems that elites in Hong Kong, they are, they are not fighting as much as uh, they used to. So they are, it seems that they are picking the side with China. Do you see them moving out? Do you see them moving to Singapore or Canada or Taiwan or the UK? You mean Hong Kong residents? There is some initial evidence that suggests even uh, since the protests in Hong Kong last year, at least some money is moving out of Hong Kong and some residents are leaving Hong Kong too. I think Taiwan is one of the primary uh, favorite place. So talk about the policy change index. How did you come up with it? How does it work? And talk about how you were able to predict Chinese crackdowns in Hong Kong with it. So it really comes, comes out of this idea I long have, as I talked about, by analyzing propaganda to predict policies. But the reason of using AI is because I just didn't want to do it myself, because there are so many propaganda messages that you can read. And I grew up with all that, so I was kind of had enough. So the policy change index basically used AI programs to process all these propaganda messages and try to predict actions that the Chinese government is likely taking. And we have several products. The first one rolled out in 2018, uh, about two years ago, that tried to assess on a quarterly basis whether China is changing its policy direction in a big way. For example, whether it's becoming more pro-market or less pro-market, or what China is thinking or will do in terms of foreign policy. And uh, most recently, we have a new product that tries to measure how bad COVID-19 really works in China by looking beyond the numbers, but instead on how they talk about the coronavirus in the newspaper, the most important one being the People's Daily. Because, you know, it's, it's very easy to write out, lie about numbers, but it's much harder to conceal the truth when you have to address a public health crisis in the national newspaper. And that's how we try to 
uh, get a, a step closer to the truth than the disclosed number that nobody really believes in. What do you think is what do you think is the number? We try to measure how they talked about COVID-19 to using the benchmark of how they used to talk about uh, SARS, which uh, has gone through a more or less complete epidemic cycle. It reaches a peak and then it went down. And what we saw was that the COVID-19 in China, the, the severity sort of started to improve throughout March and April and May, but much more gradually than what the official number says, which basically started to report no cases since March, which is not very credible if we measure what they say in words, which really certainly matter. So what does the Chinese government fear? If you analyze their propaganda, what are they afraid of? You mean in terms of what they choose to not say? Yes. Could you clarify? What they choose to not say or how they talk about different things. What do they fear the most? Well, the propaganda outlet we are examining is the People's Daily, which is domestic propaganda. So the logic behind that being indicative of policies is because the Soviet model of propaganda, which China has followed for decades, was that they tried to move public opinion so that people are on board with the policy agenda the Chinese government wanted to push out. So even... If we think about an absurd policy called cracking down protesters, for example, you might think that, oh, yeah, maybe they don't want to talk about that. But if we look back at how they talk about the Tiananmen Square protest in 1989, which ended up with a shooting of students in Tiananmen Square. But if you look at what they're saying in the newspaper uh, in the months leading up to the crackdown, we already can see an escalation of language because before you really go ahead and shoot at the students protesting, you need to first convince the other people that they are bad, right? And so they changed the word they used to describe protesters because when they first came out in Tiananmen Square, they were demonstrators. They became protesters and then traitors and it gets worse and worse. All of these change in language happened way before they actually took action. What percentage of the population of mainland China supports the Chinese Communist Party? Does it enjoy like a 20% approval rating, a 40% approval rating, a 60% approval rating? I know it's hard to know. Yes. So it's very hard to know precisely because it's not a free society, right? It's not an open society. But my impression, though, is that the Chinese Communist Party is quite popular domestically. And to a large extent, that's due to the effect of propaganda when they... For example, they had this uh, coronavirus outbreak and then they sort of adopted a very draconian measures to curb the spread of the virus. And now that when all these other countries are having it terribly, it became their talking point to tell the citizens, you know, we solved this crisis and look at what a mess it is in the United States. I have no trouble believing the Communist Party being popular domestically. Can you imagine a scenario where mainland China has democracy at some point in the next 20 years? That would be great. And <laughs> it's really hard to say. The, the algorithms we develop with the policy change index are only uh, able to predict very short-term changes. So whenever they change policies, very shortly before that they change the language. And if China ever becomes an open society, in which case mass media will no longer be strictly controlled environment, in that case, the, all the policy change index would cease to be effective. And we stand ready to fold all the programs if China ever become a democratic society. Talk about, like, if you look at some of the things that you're seeing in terms of policy change with the People's Daily, 
I'm going to just list some things. Taiwan or the treatment of the Uyghurs or in terms of economic growth or any of those things sort of on the radar screen that you're seeing some sort of hit on your radar of policy change? So as we speak, uh, what we are detecting right now is that China is already shifting from averting the crisis of COVID-19 to at least to some extent back to normalcy because they are starting to talk a lot more about recovering, recover, uh, you know, uh, reopening the economy and much less about curbing a virus spread. And now what we are seeing after they have, at least they think they have reverted the crisis, they are going back to some of the usual themes that they have, including, for example, in emphasizing infrastructure, one belt, one role, you know, solving the issue of poverty. And also they, they also want some higher degree of openness in terms of international trade and investment. Of course, not in a way that they would really abide by the international <laughs> the norms in, in terms of fair trade. So that's interesting. But you're not seeing them talk about like we're taking over Taiwan next, the splitists, and we got to get the amphibious boats ready to <laughs> invade Taiwan. They're not saying crazy stuff like that, are they? Like they more than usual? That. No, they are not saying that yet. Okay, how about, are they saying stuff like all oh, those, you know, anything terrible about Uyghurs or anything like that in the People's Daily? No, but this is not to say that it will not say that in the future. So things like this are very volatile, uh, meaning that, for example, if we look back to 1989 Tiananmen Square protests, we only really saw that within the months leading up to the crackdown. So things can change. One day is too long in politics, as they say. Could you imagine a scenario where you'll be able to detect if there's going to be an overthrow of the Xi Jinping? You know, like in, even within the, the Chinese regime, there have been changes in government on sudden, you know, in the Soviet system, you saw this. Even though Xi Jinping has made himself president for life, I mean, I think there was a logic to the previous system where there was sort of 10-year cycles, really, since the, I don't know, since the 80s. And he's put himself on a dangerous trajectory. And I don't know if you've looked at, in the past, changes in the top leadership. Could you detect stuff in the People's Daily before it happened, before they changed the top leader? Using just examples from the Chinese history, then the answer is no. But there are opportunities to detect regime changes like that primarily because we have seen the same thing with Soviet Union and East Germany, so to speak. So that actually is one of the future projects we are thinking about to see whether, for example, if we look at official newspaper published by East Germany or you know, Soviet Union, in which case it would be Pravda, right? And so to see whether leading up to the collapse of the regime, whether there would be unusual signs that would be indicative of the change. We haven't gone that far yet, though, unfortunately. <laughs> I could think of a lot of government funders that would like to fund this work. This is really interesting. And I don't think it's just the United States government. I could think of a half dozen or two dozen governments that are calling you, that should be calling you if they're not calling you. When did you figure this out? In the last two years, you've come up with this? So the first product in the PCI product line was launched in 2018 when I was at the American Enterprise Institute. They helped you incubate that? That's a great contribution. Thank you. Thank you. I really had a great time because my job at AEI back then was to do whatever I was passionate about. And doing this is exactly what I was passionate about. And I spent most of my time there trying to develop this algorithm. And now I continue to do this with the Cato Center at George Mason University. I think it's fantastic. Are you able to travel to China freely? I have been, yes. But 
the past doesn't necessarily indicate the future, obviously. <laughs> you know, this is really interesting work, but I'm not sure they're going to like it. What we do know is that the program's job is to watch the Chinese government's propaganda. So what we know is that the Chinese government is watching us as we watch them. And now with your uh, awesome podcast, they know that we know that they know that we are watching them as well. <laughs> I totally agree. So tell me about, have you gotten interest from, without naming governments if you don't want to, I'm assuming you've gotten an enormous amount of interest on this machine learning product from various governments in the world. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, so in fact, the PCI has been demonstrated to government users, including folks on the Hill and different agencies. So you're gonna do some other things. You're gonna look at Pravda, you're gonna look at East Germany and see if you can kind of detect using machine learning subtle changes in language to see if like a month before if there was a regime change in the leadership. So I think this is a very interesting product that I think is going to have a lot of different uses. I also think this could be a product for looking at the Iranian regime, maybe even North Korea, Cuba, potentially Venezuela, and just sort of my favorite governments here. Russia, I would think there might be something here with the Russian government. So I just think it's a very, very interesting product that you've got going on here. So when I ask people, can you imagine a potential for democracy in China? Most Americans, Folks who look like me and talk like me, oh yeah, forget it, it's impossible. I disagree. I think we don't know. I mean, I would argue there's been an argument made, Dr. Zong, that like we have engaged China for 40 years and it has failed. The jury may be still out, to use the American idiomatic expression. Of the 25 members of the Politburo, I think two have studied abroad. All of their kids have studied abroad. I don't know how many people who are Chinese nationals have studied overseas. I'm guessing it's 5 million. Six million members of the elite, they're between the ages of 30 and 50. Most people in mainland China, other than the business elite, don't get to the top jobs till they're 60 or 65. So I don't think we know yet if that sort of our engagement has fully changed. So I would argue there could be folks like you who've studied at Northwestern, who then went back to China, who are princelings, right, who are children of princelings and princesslings, whatever the term is, of these elite leaders who are going to say we need to make some kind of a change. Maybe I'm just being crazy. I'm not a China expert, but most American China experts I talk to are like, oh, forget it. It's never going to happen. But what do you think? So I think you are touching upon a very important hypothesis that we have long had, which is the engagement with China economically would promote political freedom to some extent sooner or later. We have not seen that. Now, people actually have argued before Xi Jinping took office that, oh yeah, he also has family in other countries, so he might be more open-minded than the, his predecessors, and so that didn't work out quite well. But going back on the more, at the more uh, theoretical fundamental level, that uh, economic engagement doesn't necessarily promote political freedom in the country you're trading with. In fact, one could argue, which is also known in the academic literature, that trade has security externalities. Nations, when they trade, they benefit economically. So there's no brainer. We know that trade is good for the economy, for the U.S. economy, for the Chinese economy. But when a country has benefited economically from trade, there's nothing that says they might not use the extra resources 
in a way that would uh, threaten the security of the other nations that they are trading with, right? So if we think about the Chinese government, they could use the wealth they accumulated since, for example, joining the WTO in the military sense or building the soft power, which, uh, as I know, Dan, you have, yeah, you have done a lot of great work on analyzing soft powers and emphasizing how important it is for the U.S. government to engage in soft power building, right? And there's nothing that says they are not doing that. In fact, they're doing it to a great extent. So being economically wealthier by being engaged in the international economic community doesn't really set, there's no theory that says they would become more democratic, but there's no theory that says they would not. So it's some countries have worked quite well in that sense. The, the, the exception, however, would be Russia, uh, would be China, exactly. It's much easier in terms of US policies toward China to make a policy when it's either a full-blown romantic engagement like the US used to do, or a full-blown Cold War decoupling. You know, there's not much in between that you need to think about the trade-off. But it's much harder if we, let's say, do to use uh, the phrase that's very popular now, a certain degree of social distancing between US and China in terms of the bilateral relations, right? And because if we want to engage in a reasonable way, there are two things we need to think about, the, the trade-off between the two, which is the benefit from trade, which is enormous with China, and the security threat, and how do you balance these two? So talking about a full-blown decoupling would do away with all the economic benefits that the U.S. consumers and U.S. companies, would, U.S. businesses would benefit from, right? But if we go back to the romantic engagement we used to, then we are exposing the U.S. system to the security threat from the Chinese government. And another thing, it's very hard, I think, to strike the balance is what's the right way for the U.S. government to build allies around the world? So it's very easy to go to the extreme, which we are seeing some signs now, to say, let's just quit all the international organizations, right? But then you're ceding grounds to the Chinese government. But then how do you engage in a way that allies, U.S. and its allies, could effectively punish the malpractice from the Chinese government in those international institutions? And that's something very hard to do because punishing, if we use terms in economics, punishing somebody who doesn't follow the rule is in uh, public goods. Because if the U.S. punishes China, then all the other nations in the certain international organizations wouldn't have to, right? So punishing China is a public good and overcoming the provision of public goods because everybody can free ride on the punishment that the U.S. government did to China. And so when other nations can free ride in terms of punishing then everybody else would have less incentive to punish, you know, malpractice. And so overcoming that provision of public goods, which is called punishment of uh, malpractice, is uh, something that the uh, U.S. and its allies would have to think through what to do. Let me go back to what I said earlier about, I think there have been three, five or six million Chinese young people that have studied at places like Northwestern or Iowa State or Harvard or Florida International University, or Catholic University, or Stanford, and many of them have gone back to China. Maybe we're being too provincial in our thinking in the United States, but our thinking has been that in other contexts, we've helped support the creation of, you know, really amazing leaders in Africa, really amazing leaders in Latin America, I would argue somewhat really amazing leaders in Central and Eastern Europe, though less so, really amazing leaders in Southeast Asia who have gone back and changed their societies. 
Is it fair to say that the jury is not still out yet? That these young, I don't know when uh, the major wave of Chinese students started studying in the United States. I'm guessing it was 2000. Maybe it was 1995, but it wasn't before 1995. I don't think. I don't. I, I would bet in 1990 there was maybe a, a 50,000 students. Today, I think there's like 500,000 students. I don't know when we hit that number. And I think it was like 15 years ago. So I don't think we've seen the impact of this yet. Do you agree with me? The hopeful part of me does. I surely, as you, I surely hope that that could lead to some positive change in the Chinese regime. You know, when you talk to your friends here in Northern Virginia, or you call them in Chicago, or you talk to them in Hong Kong or somewhere else, is that what they hope? At the individual level, yes. But to what extent that really translates to effect on policies is something I'm not quite sure about. So individually, there are many open-minded people open-minded people in China, right? So even domestically... There's 1.3 billion people. There's a lot of diversity of views. Right. But I think one thing that's under-emphasized is that for an authoritarian regime that has benefited economically from engaging the rest of the world, the surveillance and social control technology has also advanced. It's far better than East Germany. It's far better than Soviet Union. It's far better than any kind of Cold War authoritarian regime. The technology is far, far better, and we don't appreciate that. Uh, as it just came out in the news the other day, there's a very famous law professor at Peking University Law School who was arrested simply because he wrote an article criticizing the Chinese government. And that happens all the time. It's not that there are not people who are open-minded who live in China, but whether that could really trigger change in the policy that could affect policy, it's much less uh, certain, in my opinion. Okay, Dr. Zhang, it's really important. You're going to have a big role to play in this, especially if we have a more democratic China. We're going to, the world is going to look to folks like you to help us, you know, help us to do that. Thanks for all you're doing. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much for having me, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 